So losing my religion, right? What a fun topic, huh? You guys have joined everybody else that came before me. Good. It's, it's an honor here to, to wrap up the, the series. You know, those of you who know me know that I'm a natural teacher more so. So I've always had the opportunity to intersperse chunks of my story throughout my teaching and certainly in my books. And I've had various appearances that I've been on where I've gotten to share bits and pieces. But this was really an opportunity for me to, to look at the beginning till now and kind of thread a story all throughout, which I, I haven't really gotten that opportunity. So in preparing this, I got the opportunity to feel all the feels throughout it. So you never know, some of those feels might come back up as I talk about some of this stuff. But one thing that I noticed as I was kind of preparing was just how the Lord really brought me to different levels of freedom and stages. And I think people that have really been steeped in religion like I was, that often is the case because there's a lot of deprogramming that has had to happen, right? Have you guys experienced the same? There's a lot of deprogramming that has to happen from especially a lot of things in childhood that you pick up that doesn't just all get shed in one sitting. And so as you hear from my story, you'll definitely see, I think, some things that you can relate to, but you'll also see some things or hear some things that are very uniquely mine and supernaturally God's as well, which is cool about all of our stories, how how they are unique, and there's always this unique catalyst that brings us to grace, that brings us here to this same place. So as I said, I was very steeped in religion. For me, I was Catholic-born, Catholic-bred, and I always say if my parents had their way for many years when I died, I'd be Catholic dead. (laughs) But they didn't have their way, and much to their distress... When I was a sophomore in high school, I got invited to a non-denominational charismatic church that was just across the Mississippi River. I grew up in southern Missouri, and this church was 15 or 20 minutes over the river in southern Illinois. And a couple friends from school invited me to this youth group on a Wednesday night, January 2001. And I wanted to go, but I was scared to go. And so I remember, like, on three different invitations, I made up some excuse as to why my mom said that I couldn't go. And so finally, one January evening, I'll never forget being in my basement when a friend called and said, hey, can you come to the youth group tonight? And I said, let me ask my mom. And I held the phone away from my ear. And I tried to think of an excuse, but this time I couldn't come up with one, so I said, she said yes. And the rest was really history with that. I remember walking in that January night to this church, a kind of church that I never knew existed. And I walked in as a 16-year-old, very insecure, very shy, very shame-ridden boy, suddenly encountering a Jesus that I never knew he could be. From the the preaching to the singing to everything, I heard about God in a personal way. I heard about him in a powerful way that I just never was exposed to before. And for the very first time, that was a moment of hope for me. It was a moment for me that I thought things can finally be different for me. 
You see, going back all the way to as far back as I can remember, back, back to being a toddler, the very first feelings that I had was that I just didn't belong. I always felt like I was this outcast, like I was somebody that was looking into a group of peers that I was not part of. For whatever reason, I just felt like everybody else was looking in at me then as with judgmental eyes as somebody that was outside of the group. So it created a whole lot of insecurity in me. It created a whole lot of social anxiety in me, fear, as I said, a lot of shame and shyness to the point to where I got around people that anybody I didn't know or wasn't super comfortable with, I would just freeze up. So I cried and I cried until I convinced my mommy to quit my first year of preschool. So you're listening to a preschool dropout. I hope that doesn't disqualify me in your eyes. I did, they did convince me to go back and I finished preschool, but I didn't, I didn't graduate beyond the insecurity and the shyness. As a matter of fact, in kindergarten and first grade, they thought that I had a reading problem because of it. They would call on me to read aloud, and I just remember little me sitting there in my desk, and I'd freeze up because I was afraid to talk. I thought they were judging me, as I said, and so I just wouldn't read, and they thought I couldn't read, and so they put me in a special bus that would come over from the public school, and I'd have to go with a handful of other students to this remedial reading program. Well, nobody wanted to be friends with a kid that didn't talk, and certainly nobody wanted to be friends with a kid that couldn't put the bat on the ball or the foot on the ball or do anything with the ball. And so I was the one that was chosen last for everything. I was the one that was, the one that was picked last for all the PE teams usually and sitting alone often at the lunch table and the one that was chosen last for for all the group projects. I remember at these little 15-minute recesses that we would have outside every day, there was this, I don't know how you describe it, but maybe this little cubby hole in the outside of the building that often I would go and kind of hide in because I didn't want to see people in the pathetic situation that I was in of not having anybody to play with. Just, just tremendous amounts of shame that really lasted with a lot of social anxiety and insecurity and mind games well into my junior high year so much that I remember many occasions at night crying in my bed just asking God to take me. Just, you know, Lord, why don't you just take me? And I don't want to overplay my story. I never dealt with suicidal thoughts. I never was, I don't, I don't think you could consider me depressed. I had a good home life. I had great parents. I had a good neighborhood all of that, but there was certainly a lot of misery in, in my life to where I was like, Lord, you know, if, if you would take me any day, that would be fine because heaven's got to be a whole lot better than what I'm going through now. And so I tell you all of that to give you just kind of the backdrop of this 16-year-old kid that walks into this, this church seeing Jesus demonstrated in a way that I never knew he could be, that I never knew he was. Because before, yes, I knew about God. I knew that Jesus died for my sins. I knew that he resurrected from the dead. But to me, God was really nothing more than a taskmaster kind of making his list and checking it twice. And Jesus was really nothing more than a plaster of Paris statue hanging on a wooden beam at the front of the church that frankly had an awful scowl on his face that looked like he was about ready to zap me dead for my every mistake. And so it was revolutionary to me hearing God spoken about in powerful and personal ways and realizing that he really had power to help, help change my life.
So that was a first stage of freedom for sure, where I started to grow in boldness. I started to understand about my identity in Christ and, and all of this. So I started breaking out of that shell. And I thought that my family would see that and I thought that they would be happy that I was growing in the faith because we were a very religious family. I mean, we did not miss a mass. We did not miss what was called a holy day of obligation. I mean, we were in that church all the time. So I thought that they were going to be happy about me wanting to grow in my faith, but it was really a threat to the old family tradition, I found out. And they believed for a long time that it was a sin to worship in any other church but there. So, I mean, I was just really, really being very rebellious by wanting to grow in my faith in their eyes. I remember buying a Bible at the church, and I had to come home and hide it under my bed. And of all the things that a 16-year-old boy could hide under his bed, a Bible was what he had to fear the most. And my, my parents really just didn't know what to do with it. I mean, they were, oh my gosh, he's, he's bought a Bible that isn't a Catholic Bible. What do we do with this? And they forced me to go to their church. I couldn't go to any church service that was considered a worship service. So I couldn't go on Sundays to the church that I was born again in because that would be worshiping outside of their church, which would be a sin. So I could go to youth group and I could go to special kind of events. So since they forced me to go to their church, I wanted to make sure everybody knew that I didn't want to be there. So that Bible I bought, I brought into the church, and I had it open very widely. I don't think I ever got past a couple verses, but I at least was making sure everybody saw that I was reading a Bible there and didn't want to be there. And then at one point I found this t-shirt on the internet that I thought would be a good idea to order that I wore in the communion line that said, worship God, not your man-made denomination. And that didn't help things very well, as you can imagine. And then in an argument over the faith at one point, I mouthed off and told my parents, you know, if you guys were around at the time of Christ, you'd have been the ones to yell, crucify him. It's funny to talk about now, but it wasn't all that funny back then. Like I said, I was growing in boldness, but it wasn't serving me all that well because I was shoving down their throats every which way I thought that they were wrong in, certainly. But at that time, 17 years old or so, about a year from graduating, I remember there was an event at the church that was something that I had never been exposed to before. They let me go because it was a Sunday night, and it was this prophet his name was Dick Mills, and I didn't know just how well-known he was across the country in kind of the prophetic realm. And like I said, I definitely didn't have any exposure to that kind of thing. So I went there on this Sunday night, and one of the things that he was known for doing was picking people out of a crowd, and then he would just, he wouldn't even have a Bible in hand, but Bible verses would come to his mind and he would thread together this prophetic word for whoever he was standing up in the congregation. And so I was in the back of the church and he stood me up. And when I stood up, I was like shaking in my boots because I thought, what's he going to do? Expose my every sin since potty training in front of the whole crowd. And there were things I did not want to expose. <laughs> but he didn't do that. What he did was he spoke something into me that was very radically different than where I was at that time. Like I said, I was this shy, insecure, shame-ridden boy 
afraid to talk, and I'll never forget some of the words that he said. He said, Kyle, you're going to have released articulation, a freedom of speech that you've never had before. He said, you're going to have a wisdom beyond your years and a vocabulary beyond your education. And then he went through, he said, Kyle, God says, go, I'll be with your mouth, I'll give you the words to say. And he went through these different verses, and he ended and said, you're going to be the church yacker. Like I said, this was very opposite from where I was. I mean, I didn't really know exactly what to do with it. I mean, be a yacker when I was always so afraid to talk? How could this be? But something in there resonated with me about that. Something in me said, this is true. There was a confirmation in my spirit with that. And so when I look back at my story, I think that was really a moment where I thought, okay, I believe this, so now I've got to get ready enough and fixed up enough and cleaned up enough and grown up enough for this. If God's going to use me in that way, then I have got to get over some of these things that I was dealing with in order to be used by God in that way. So that really started like a decade journey of me then graduating high school and going to a Christian undergraduate school. I lived in Missouri, but then went to South Florida to this, this school in Palm Beach, Florida. And I always tell people that was really, really my process of enlisting myself in the holiness police. Because I really didn't have much love for me, so I thought that, I mean, certainly I couldn't have much love for any other person because I didn't really like me. So I thought that God had required all of this stuff of me to get ready, that he had this huge standard that I had to live up to, so therefore everybody else has to live up to it too, and I was bound and determined that I was going to make sure they knew it and help them do it. And it wasn't a great way of winning friends and influencing people, I can tell you that much. But that's, that's what I thought. And so from... From there, I graduated and I went to work for a huge church down there, like at the time, one of the 15 largest churches in the country, and everything I did was spiritual. I mean, I went to that church, or I worked at that church, and I attended another church, and I was going to conferences, and I was doing all of this stuff. I was in a church building every night of the week after working in the church in the day. I mean, Monday night was spiritual growth seminar, and Tuesday night was advanced Bible study, and Wednesday night was... I was a youth leader, and Thursday night I was hosting small group, and Friday night was intercessory prayer. And then I was in church on Sunday night, or Saturday night service, and then again on Sunday morning. So I was doing everything that I knew to do to get ready and be good enough and be fixed enough and be cleansed enough and all of this stuff. And then an opportunity came to go help a ministry in North Florida, in Pensacola, Florida. This is 2007. That had played a big part in my early Christian years at 16 years old, high school years. And this ministry was super successful for many years, but because of just a horrible leadership decision, really was almost burned to the ground. And I had an opportunity to go help them out. At 22 years old, I mean, I thought that I could hold, restore the whole ministry. I mean, what was I thinking? But but really, God did use it, and I, I got to be second in charge in that ministry, and, and there was just a lot of opportunity there and a lot of things that happened there that we did restore the ministry. But if you know 
much or anything about Pensacola, it is also known as kind of a land of revival. There was a big revival that happened there, I think, in 1995. And so I got to be friends with a lot of people that were part of that, and I really got to be part of that circle. And I don't mean to characterize everybody in that type of thing as this, but there can definitely be a whole lot of legalism in that type of thing, too. Have you found that? Sometimes it comes down to you've got this God's man of power for the hour up on a stage who is basically implying to everybody that the reason why God is using him the way that he's being used in miracles and healings and deliverance is because of how much he prays and how much he fasts and how much he does to be this pure vessel. Meanwhile, everybody else is coming day in and day out or week in and week out begging God at the altar through tears to be clean enough to use them like he is. And enough is never enough after a while. There's always more to do. And that might be a cynical approach to this. Like I said, I don't mean to characterize everybody, but it ends up being just a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears trying to prove something that Jesus already proved. So I was in all of that, and then I went to seminary, and I got my Master's of Divinity in Biblical Studies, and I don't mean to minimize experience, and I don't mean to minimize education. I'm grateful for all of it. God used it all to bring me to where I am. I am I'm grateful for it all, as I said. But with all of the experience and the things that I saw, and undoubtedly I saw God move in ways that were undeniable. I saw blind eyes open and deaf ears open and all this stuff throughout that that I can never unsee. I mean, people try to tell me God doesn't, doesn't move in those ways today, and I say, you're barking up a wrong tree because I've seen too much. So all of this is bubbling up in me from my education and my experience and where I was working, and I had a very unique thing at 26 or 27 years old that most people, much less people that age, don't have, is because of my employment in a ministry, I had access to a TV studio, which might be kind of dangerous for a mid 20-year-old person to have access to. The ministry I was a part of was, was largely a media ministry, and they traveled, and we had built this, this set in a TV studio in the local Christian television network. And so because of all this stuff bubbling up in me, I had to have an outlet. And I knew nobody probably was going to listen to a person in their mid-20s teach or preach, so I thought I can at least host stories of people that God used in mighty ways for healings and deliverance and things like that. So I brought in over a period of a year or two a handful of people into this studio and I recorded interviews with them. And so some of those became fairly successful like in the early days of YouTube and stuff, enough to where I thought, okay, I have figured it out. I know what God is going to use me for now. I'm going to be a voice of his power. So I thought I'm ready, I'm going to in my late 20s now, I'm going to step out, I'm going to resign my position in that ministry, and I'm going to start my own. And so that's what I did. This was like around December of 2012. I thought I was ready, I thought I knew the message, but the secret that I couldn't say back then, and certainly I couldn't say to anybody in those circles that 
made it seem like you had to be pure enough to be used by God was I was I still was not the extrovert that I thought I needed to be in order to be used by God. I thought I had to be loud and proud and boisterous and just love talking to people. And I used to hear all these stories of evangelists. They would come to the church and have stories of how they practically won the whole airplane to the Lord on the way to the church. And meanwhile, to this day, I'm on an airplane and a stranger tries to talk to me and I'm thinking, would you please shut up? (laughs) I remember we went to this this weekend intensive out in California for street preaching as a part of the ministry that I was a part of before I started my own. And we went to Hollywood Boulevard and Huntington Beach. And I don't know if you guys realize those aren't really points in the Bible Belt. (laughs) And we were supposed to learn how to pass out tracts and talk to people in the street. But part of it was also we were supposed to stand up on a box with a megaphone and preach to the air and attract a crowd. And I did not want to do it, so I kind of hid out to where I never had to do it. And then, of course, I felt all this guilt because shouldn't I be passionate about winning souls? Shouldn't I be passionate about this? Why aren't I, you know? So I felt all of this shame for that, like, am I even a Christian? Meanwhile, I'm stepping out into ministry at the same point, and I'm also still dealing with all of these triggers from childhood stuff. Like, I'm still hearing certain words that will send me into mind games, and I'm still thinking about past experiences and afraid of certain experiences that used to reject me in the past that would send me into weeks of mind games where I would see rejection in places where it didn't exist and I would hear offense in words that weren't really offensive. And I was still dealing with those so-called seven deadly sins that I never really had the victory that all these revivalists told me that I was supposed to have in order to be used by God. And so I have all of these secrets still trying to step out into ministry so we month into ministry, suddenly I awake and I have this trigger of something that just sends me back to thinking about my every sin since potty training, and suddenly there's like this severe, almost demonic war in my mind about why I shouldn't be doing this, why I wasn't good enough to do this. And I just remember in this week of warfare, hearing three different kind of whispers constantly. The first one was, look what you've done. My mind's eye went back to just everything. There I was stealing the piece of chocolate from the grocery store and taking the Louisville slugger to my neighbor girl's stomach. And worse, though, was all the secret sins of my adult life that, that made me feel like The second thing I heard, look what you've done. God can't use you. You're too far gone. You've messed up one too many times. God can't use someone like you in the ministry. Leave it up to all the perfect preachers. And the third thing I heard was walk away, shut it all down, do something else, anything else but this. And like I said, I was was beat to tears for that week. I was afraid that the sky was going to fall. I was afraid that my every sin was going to get exposed. And I was afraid that maybe God was the one behind it. Maybe he was punishing me and saying that, "Eh, you shouldn't be doing this. But you know, God never leaves anybody to be the devil's doormat. And I'm always amazed at the ways he continues to pursue people. And just in his divine timing, 
in that moment, I happened to be preparing for one of those interviews that I was doing. And this time it was with a lady, her name's Dr. Sandy, who had her, her single ministry, she had this retreat center out in kind of the country in Alabama, and she had written many books, but it was all about the cross. Her ministry was all about the cross and just helping people really experience, I didn't know the term back then, but really experiencing the finished work of the cross. And so I was reading one of her books, going through all this warfare, which is a real trick. I mean, dealing with the accusations of the devil while also preparing to record this real spiritual interview. But I was reading one of her books, and it took me to, to a familiar verse of Scripture I had read over. I mean, going to seminary and all the services I had been a part of, I had read over many times before, but I would read over it. It was John 1.29, the words of John the Baptist, as he's seeing Jesus come for his baptism. And it's, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that word, behold, gripped me. Because like I said, I, I saw it, or I read, read it many times, but this time I saw it, like I beheld it. Like, like I was starting to feel it and, and sense it and hear it and like, like it became something to me. And I beheld him as the lamb. Now, like I said, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I have to sneak a teach in. Can't help myself. You know, there are many ways that the Bible symbolizes Jesus. There's a lion and a bridegroom in many ways, but far more than all of those ways, Jesus is symbolized in the Bible as a lamb. In the book of Revelation alone, he's called a lamb at least 25 times or more, depending on the translation that you're reading. And a lamb was God's people's symbol of freedom and of protection and of healing and deliverance and of atonement. Charles Spurgeon, you know him, famous preacher, he said that verse of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb, is the greatest sermon ever preached. He said, nobody needs a sermon when that's the old one. Nobody needs a new sermon when that's the old one. And I started to behold its power as I was sitting there in my apartment, living room, on a couch, beat down by all of these accusations, a month into my own ministry, weeping, as suddenly, I won't get into all of the details, but suddenly I just started to see it. And my mind's eye went from my every sin since potty training hanging over me to my every sin on the lamb like 2,000 years ago. And I saw Jesus in that moment, not in any kind of what they would call an open vision, but with my mind's eye, I just imagined it. I saw him as that lamb filleted on the altar of the world with his arms of grace stretched out across that rugged beam, ultimately saying, I love you this much. I saw, yes, all of the stuff from the past, But more than that, I saw all of the stuff from the present on him, too, 2,000 years ago. And the future fears, too.
And as I just beheld him as the lamb filleted there, and, and yes, I melted into tears on the floor over the love, over what was done. And I remember getting this sense that I needed to get up off the floor and write down on a piece of paper all of these things that were hanging over my head. And I thought, what is this? Am I supposed to write these things down and then have this record of my wrongs to hang on the wall to stay forever guilty of this stuff? That's not what it was about. When I did write those things down on a piece of paper, those things that I had to get out of my head and onto something else, I wrote them down, and then I felt the sense, I don't know if it was a word from the Lord or what, but I felt the sense to just draw a cross all over that piece of paper until that piece of paper was covered with the only things that can cover for sin, which was the cross of Christ. But covered wasn't enough, because covered is Old Testament. Jesus canceled the record of wrongs. And so at that point, God said, now I want you to take that piece of paper and I want you to rip it to shreds because Colossians 2.14 says that I have canceled that record of wrongs. And in canceling that record of wrongs, the next verse says that I have disarmed all the power of the enemy in the world and in your life. So with that piece of paper of just everything that the enemy was using to accuse me as confetti at my feet, I heard those final words on the cross. I heard it is finished. The guilt, the shame of past regrets and present struggles finished. And I don't know how else to describe it except for I finally felt it. It finally went from my head to my heart. I knew, I knew some of this stuff before. As I said, I, I had grown up knowing Jesus died for my sins, but it never really, I never really understood what it meant about my present and my future, really. It was always just something that covered past stuff, I think, but nothing that covered present and future. And finally, I was getting it. And like the joy of salvation came over me. And a, and a new boldness came over me to where that is the moment, hearing it is finished, seeing that record of wrongs as confetti on my feet, Beholding Jesus as the Lamb, I rose up on that apartment room floor and I finally made the determination that if anything was going to come against me again, any word from people, any reminder of the past, any accusation from the enemy, because they still do, that stuff doesn't just end, but when any of those things come at me again, I am going to use the word of God and the truth of the finished work of Christ to say, shut up, devil. And so that's where all of this, you know, people sometimes call me the shut up devil guy because I have this app called Shut Up Devil and I wrote a book called Shut Up Devil and all of this stuff, but that's where it first came from. That is where, that, that is where my journey to grace really began. You know, I, I thought that I had a message a month before that I was launching out in ministry with, but in God's own unique way, in his own unique time, a month later, he gave me his message. And I'm just as passionate about it now, almost 10 years later, as I've ever been. And yes, I've grown a whole lot in the message since then. I definitely didn't know everything about it. I definitely didn't have the theology all perfected, nor do I today, Revelation, nor 
Will we ever? I mean, grace and the love of God is such a huge thing that we can't be so naive to think that we're ever going to have it all figured out. We should all be learning. And if you were to look at the three books that I've written to this point, you would certainly see my journey to grace unashamedly. You would see the, the path and the growth. The first book tells really about my story of beholding the Lamb and then living in the victory of that. And, and my most recent one is, is certainly you see the growth of grace there. And, and now I just got signed for my fourth one that I just started this week, which is titled Permission to be Imperfect. And so you're really going to see grace in that. I mean, that's a grace title, right? But like I said, the one thing that has stayed the same ever since that encounter at the cross with the finished work is that when reminders of past regrets and present struggles come up, because they do still, they do, but when they still come up, I know that they no longer define me. They no longer mean anything about me or about my future. God can do with me because the finished work of the cross finished it off for me and for you. Come on, isn't God good? God is good. Father, thank you so much. We just praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your unique work in each and every one of our lives, God. May we never forget the magnitude of your grace and what your love means, Lord. And may we never be a doormat to the enemy, but may we always remember what your finished work does and how it alone has qualified us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you.